We return to the gospel according to John, and we're at the end of chapter 2. I'd like to read all the way through chapter 3, verse 15. I'm going to limit the sermon text tonight up through verse 10, and then we'll come back to the, really the second half of this, uh, verse 11 and following. But John chapter 2 at verse 23 is where we pick it up this evening. And there we read the word of the Lord, John 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born When he is old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's enduring word. Let's ask for his blessing. Our Father in heaven, in Christ alone, we gather tonight, and in Christ we come to the word and pray that our Savior would speak his truth to us. We thank you, not simply for his ministry to Nicodemus, but to all of his people throughout the ages, and even to us this evening. We pray, Lord, you'd enlighten us by your spirit, that we could receive and believe, that we could be corrected, that we could be built up, that we could be directed. Give to us faith. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, the passage we've read tonight is, I think, simultaneously one of the most devastating passages in all of the Bible and one of the most encouraging and hopeful. It's tremendously devastating to the pride of man, right? Because we're often quite confident in ourselves as human beings and in our ability to to assess and to evaluate and to understand. And here comes Jesus saying, you can't get it. There's no human possibility that you can comprehend. 
There's no human possibility that you will ever know who I am and enter heaven. The first two chapters here of of John Jesus has been engaging the ministry and revealing himself. He, He turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He has cleansed the temple. And now we read tonight that he'd been doing many other signs, miracles at at the feast. And yet we learn tonight that despite all this outward revelation, no one understands who Christ is and therefore rightly embraces Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, the Savior of the world, simply by way of that outward revelation. More is needed. An internal change, a new heart, a complete remaking of man. And so the passage before us tonight is tremendously important for understanding human condition, for for knowing what you and me were before Christ changed us. It's important tonight for, for understanding the world around us and every unbeliever. For understanding that no one has it naturally within them to comprehend the gospel. There's no, there's no mere moral persuasion that are gonna, that's going to bring anyone to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can, we can speak the gospel. We can make wonderful apologetic arguments, defenses of the faith. We can, we can answer objections. We can speak in love. We can show kindness and meekness. But unless the Spirit gives a new heart, no one, no one will believe. Maybe I told you about my friend in college who became a Christian and then sought to persuade his parents. And, and he told them the gospel and they objected and he answered the objections. They objected more and he answered their objections and they were not persuaded. And he, he studied more and more and more, feeling guilty that he wasn't doing a enough, good enough job in, in answering his parents' objections. And he only found relief when he realized it's, it's not of man. It's not of human arguments. It's, it's only when they bow beneath the authority of God, it's only when they have a new heart will one believe. And so this passage is, is teaching that. This passage is devastating to the human nature. But it's also remarkably hopeful and encouraging. Because if the Savior is sent from heaven is telling us this, then we know that he comes with power to save. He doesn't come looking to us to do it. For ourselves or anyone else, he comes with power to save. It's tremendously hopeful that God is in the business of saving. Not helping, but saving. And tonight we rejoice in that truth. So let's look at this passage as Jesus reveals that only a new heart, only by a new heart, spirit given, can one know Christ Jesus. I want to look at that need for the new heart and then that gift of the new heart. Or we could call it the blindness that's found below, and then the birth that comes from above. The blindness found below, and the birth that comes from above. Well, first of all, the blindness. We read at the end of of John chapter 2 that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. So here he is, Jesus at the Passover feast. Remember the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and So there's this week in which people are in Jerusalem, the capital city, the temple city, and they're witnessing that Jesus did, like I said, other signs beyond that one in Cana of turning the water into wine. Christ is doing miracles, and people are seeing this, and these miracles authenticate, don't they, to people that this is a man, this is a man who can be trusted, this is a man from God. And we read that they believed him believed in his name, and yet the scriptures make clear here that they didn't 
truly believe. They didn't surrender to him. They did not believe on him. Remember in the scriptures we find at times that faith is not faith. In the sense that, that there's faith that is insincere, right? Uh, the parable of the sower. Remember the seed scattered on the, on the shallow soil, the rocky soil. It, it springs up and Christ says it's those who receive the word with joy. But then they wither away. They don't have root in Christ Jesus. Jesus will say in John chapter 6, after he's fed the 5,000, and then they follow him, and he will say to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so Christ here in John 2 already is recognizing in the many who are believing on him that it's not real belief. In fact, it's interesting that the same word is used both about Jesus and about them It says that many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he did, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. They trusted in him. He did not entrust himself to them. Jesus was not simply seeking an outward following. Politicians might be happy with that. If you're going to follow me, that's great. You're going to give money. I don't really care if you don't know completely who I am. Maybe I'm actually glad you don't know who I am, but I just want you to follow me and give money. Jesus is not about that. Christ Christ is hungry to save and to save really. And John tells us why he did not entrust himself to these people. It's because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. We saw that earlier, right, in the Gospel of John. Simon comes to Jesus and and Jesus says, when he looks at him, you are Simon, son of Jonah, you should be called Cephas, which is translated stone. Jesus looks at Simon and he he knows the future. He knows his calling for this man. He knows what's in this man. And then Nathanael comes to Jesus and Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael says, "How How do you know me? Right? We're told here Jesus knew what was in all men. He doesn't need man to tell him what's in man. He, he knows. He, he sees right through everyone. His eyes penetrate to the innermost recesses of the heart. When you meet the, the resurrected Jesus in uh, the book of Revelation, he's presented in Revelation 1 with, with eyes of fire. His eyes pierce. Now, we'd be greatly benefited in our spiritual lives, wouldn't we, if we remembered this? If we remembered this all the time. We wouldn't have to put on costumes. We wouldn't have to make excuses. We wouldn't have to hide. We could know Jesus, what a friend for sinners, right? That we can bring all our needs to this Christ in prayer to his Father through him. Because he already knows. We can, we can know what Isaiah was saying, that he's a wonder of a counselor. He's the wonderful counselor because he, he knows. If you go to a counselor, you know, you might have to spend first several sessions, telling them the problem, telling them what's in you. But Christ reads us through and through. It's a comfort. It's a wonder. He's the Lord. Jesus will meet the Samaritan woman a little bit later here, remember? And and she'll come with all this fluff of religion, and he'll pierce right through it of all the men she's been with. But here already in John chapter 3, Jesus, knowing what's in a man, there comes a man named Nicodemus. We're told that Nicodemus comes at night. Many people have insisted that he was afraid to be seen with Jesus during the day. The text doesn't say that. 
We don't actually know why he came at night, if it was convenient or if he was afraid or if he simply wanted time when he wouldn't be interrupted with Jesus or whatever it might be. But in any case, Psalm 139 holds true. Indeed, darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You Come to Jesus at night and he still sees through you. Now, ordinary eyes did not see through Nicodemus, right? Because if, if you're a Jew in that day and you and you know anything about Nicodemus, then, then you regard him as a holy man, right? He, he's a Pharisee of the strictest sect. The Pharisees were the, were the conservatives. They were, they were the ones concerned about religious orthodoxy. They were the ones you'd be glad to have as seminary professors. And he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling body, the, the Supreme Court, or the senators of, of Israel, To the eyes of all men, Nicodemus has it all together. He knows the word. He's a theologian. He's a teacher. He's a man to be revered. And he comes to Jesus with a statement, right? He doesn't come with a question, first of all, but a statement. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He says to Jesus, we've noticed, we've watched, we've evaluated, we've assessed you. And we've determined that you have come from God. And Jesus responds with, wow, thank you. It's so good to be accepted. I'm glad that you realize who I am. No, Jesus responds, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus knew it was in Nicodemus. Jesus perhaps saw Nicodemus leading to his question he's going to ask. But Jesus cuts to the chase. You come to me standing on your own abilities, assuming you have the capacity to evaluate me. And you're going to listen to my answer and evaluate my answer. No. Jesus will not entrust himself to Nicodemus and these preconceived ideas about human ability. Most assuredly, or truly, truly, amen, amen. Listen up, Nicodemus. What I'm about to say to you is absolute truth. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. What's the kingdom? The kingdom of God is the, is the reign or the rule of God. It's the kingship of grace. This rule of the Lord has broken in upon this earth and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great king. And the kingdom of God is, is spiritual life. It's to know God. It's to know the joy of forgiveness. It's to, it's to have peace with God. And Christ is saying you can't enter this kingdom. You can't participate in this kingdom unless you are born again. It's the absolutely necessary condition, the new birth, the new heart. See, Nicodemus has not got it all together. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Well, no, no, it's a lot more than that. Christ is not merely a teacher come from God. God is with him in a far greater way. The very kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. This is the eternal Son of God and the Savior of the world. Nicodemus, you can't understand who I am. You can't judge who I am. You can't enter this kingdom. But through a whole rejuvenation 
of your being. To see the significance of Christ takes far more than recognizing Jesus as a good teacher. How many aren't proud, right? Even over and over again since Jesus walked the earth, people have been so proud that they've assessed Jesus as a good teacher. Well, yes, I believe he was a good teacher. How many people don't say that? As if they have the ability. Maybe I told you the story when I was in college or maybe seminary. I was on an airplane and the man across the aisle who came on the plane, I thought, probably intoxicated. And then he began drinking more on the plane. But at some point he asks, he sees my Bible and he asks if he can have my, hold my Bible, look at my Bible. And so I hesitantly gave over my Bible to him. And he pages through, a few pages, reads a bit, pages a few pages. And then he hands it back to me and goes, that's real good right there. I just thought, what, what do you say to a drunk who's telling you the Bible's real good? Right there. Right? But this is, this is human nature. That we think we have the ability to measure the Son of God. And here comes a devastating proclamation. Oh, you great Pharisee. You ruler in Israel. You have no idea what you're talking about. You can't see, you can't know the grace of God's kingdom unless you are born again. That's what we are by nature, dead in sin, blind, slaves to the evil one, unable to know, unable to come to Christ, unable to believe. But then the glorious good news, what is this? A birth from above. Let's look at that secondly. Jesus told them you can't see the kingdom unless one is born again. And actually you notice it's in the New King James footnote, maybe in other ones too. But born again can be translated born from above. Born again or born from above, either translation. There's probably no essential difference in the end, even though born from above might be better. But Jesus is saying, in effect, that, that you had a first birth, you had your natural birth, you were born of your mother, biological birth, but that's insufficient to enter the kingdom. You need another birth, you need a supernatural birth, a new birth, another birth, a birth from above. Every single person who by faith believes on Jesus proves that you've been born again. Anyone who believes on Christ, it's only because you have that new life given you from above. All Christians are born again or born from above. Now, we have this language, I think it's less uh, prevalent today than it used to be, but people speak about born-again Christians, right? Born-again Christians. R.C. Sproul points out this is a redundancy. A redundancy. If you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're born again. But he notes, at least in his recollection, there'd be the beginning of this common usage going back to Chuck Colson, who was an advisor to President Nixon and caught up in the Watergate thing, and then he writes a book, Born Again. And then, and then President Carter, during his presidential campaign, announces to the nation that he's been born again. And suddenly everyone's talking about being a born-again Christian. But the question is, what other kind is there? The only real Christians are those who've been Born again. Now Nicodemus is confused. How can this be? Can he climb back in his mother's womb? 
And then Jesus repeats it in verse 5, what he just said in verse 3, but he changes the apparently confusing words for Nicodemus. He had said, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again. Now he says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the new birth, the birth from above, comes from the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit that Christ purchased on the cross don't have a right to the Spirit. The Spirit is a gift. It's what Jesus Christ died to obtain, to pour out upon his people. It's the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead and raises our dead souls from the grave, who, who breathes life into us. Maybe you're noticing that these are the very things we studied recently in the Canons of Door, right? Total depravity and irresistible grace. In fact, in fact, there's that wonderful statement under the irresistible grace section, page uh, 273, and the canons, extraordinarily wonderful statements about what God does. Article 11, the Holy Spirit's work and conversion. Moreover, when God carries out this good pleasure in his chosen ones, he not only sees to it that the gospels proclaim them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so they can understand, But by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he penetrates into the inmost being of man. He opens the closed heart. He softens the hard heart. He circumcises the heart that's uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. And then the next article article 12 on page 273 says that this regeneration, this new creation, This raising from the dead, this making alive so clearly proclaimed in the scriptures is what God works in us without our help. Without our help. It's the sovereign, wonderful working of the Lord. So Jesus says in verse 6, that's what which is born of the flesh is flesh. What you get from your parents is flesh. We come to this world as, as sinful people. There's no spiritual life in us. But what is of the Spirit is spiritual. In John chapter 1, remember, we read that those who were given the right to become children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Born of God. What a a tremendous statement to be born of God. You know, the very nature of birth is that we are passive, right? None of us were participants in our birth, well, some came out kicking or screaming or seemed unwilling to come out maybe, but not really, right? The day of our birth was appointed by the Lord. We were passive and we were brought forth. Jesus tells Nicodemus, don't marvel what I'm saying to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You shouldn't be so surprised that man doesn't have the power to give himself new birth, nor should you be surprised that the Spirit of God does have the power. The Spirit is like the wind. In fact, remember the, uh, in both the, the Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek, in both languages, there's a single word that means wind or spirit. And so the Holy Spirit's compared to wind, right? You think of Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the sound of a rushing wind. Well, the wind, Jesus says, is sovereign. You can't control wind. 
can't trace its origin or its disappearance. You can't capture it or direct its path. The wind comes. You see it's the effects, right? Things blow, things move. But you don't control wind. You can't manipulate wind. And so it is with the Spirit. Again, it's probably less common today, but I, I used to see some places where on churches, maybe Pentecostal churches especially, on the sign out front, they would write, Revival next Thursday. Right? Well, that's funny. Do you write the Holy Spirit's schedule? Revival next Thursday? Is the Spirit coming next Thursday? Well, you see, but in some churches... The Holy Spirit maybe is not so necessary for conversion. Charles Finney goes down in history for a lot of things, some of them good, but he's affected American Christianity in a tremendous way and not for the good in this way, that he, he's the one that brought forward the kind of new measures, as they're called, that led to the revivalism that has marked evangelical culture in America. The whole... Uh, Altar call by which many worship services for the past decades have, have ended, right? With the call for people to come down the aisle is the outworking of Charles Finney, who believed that conversion was not some great miracle, but if you had the right technique, you could bring about because man has the ability to turn and believe. He had the anxious bench. Put people in the front row here and, and have a long protracted service. Maybe have the right music. Preach at them. Bring about the whole pressure of the crowd waiting for them to get converted. And you can evict conversions. And now we've had for decades this whole altar call. Get people to do something with their feet. Make them move. Make them act. And yet, what devastating results. How many people haven't been manipulated in the midst of emotional turmoil or confusion to say they've become a Christian and to receive the assurance that they've been born again? Only to wither away. And what has that done in their minds to, to the thought of what Christianity is or what the power of Christ was? I guess it wasn't, I guess Christ is not very strong because I was converted, I was born again, and now, and now I'm back to my old habits. This is not how the Spirit works. This is not how regeneration happens by a preacher coercing people. Spirit is a gift from heaven. The Spirit moves like the wind. The Spirit cannot be scheduled or controlled. He's sovereign to save when and where it pleases Him. So we can't tell Him where to act. We can certainly use the means He's told us He is pleased to use, the preaching of the gospel. But we are dependent upon Him. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? You see, if he's a teacher of Israel, then he was to know the Old Testament. And what had the Old Testament promised? The promises of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. 
I put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Maybe that's what Jesus is referring to when he says you have to be born again of of the water and the spirit. The water cleansing, the spirit giving new life. Nicodemus is not as familiar with the scriptures as he ought to be. But Jesus is, and Jesus has come to fulfill that. What no person could do for themselves, give new life, Christ has come to purchase for us. And that's what he's done. Died for our sins, paid our debt, arose victorious, ascended to heaven, and gives his spirit to give new life to dead hearts. What's the application? Three of them. Number one, Christ receives everyone who comes to him. And if we've come to him, then we ought not to pat ourselves on the back, but give God glory. Lord, this is your work. You've done it. Why do I care about your word? Why do I repent of my sin? Why do I believe on Jesus Christ? Why do I esteem him properly? It's all of you, Lord. You did this in me. Praise be to God. Number two, we ought to pray for the Spirit as we look upon an unregenerate world. If God, by his spirit, is the one who saves, then we must pray that God will save. The Lord God who alone can save will do what the Lord God alone can do and what he's pleased to do. He's a savior. Number three, we ought not to use wrong methods. We ought not to rely upon human technique as as the great thing. We can work on our ability to speak the word. We can work at seizing opportunities, but we ought not to rely upon man-made techniques or introduce things into the worship service or into evangelism that, that are not biblical. But number four, finally, we should use every biblical method because the Spirit has come to give life. And so let us use the word. Let us preach the word. Let us take advantage of opportunities Let's not give up on a lost world. No, we can't change hearts. No, we can't bring people to understand who Christ is. But Christ can, by his spirit. So let us pray and let us work as we give thanks to the Lord Jesus for what he, by his spirit, has done for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the clear revelation of your word. We pray that it will amaze us again and again to see both the hardness of our natural nature, blind, foolish, rebellious, and to see the wonder of your spirits working, that he's given life to our dead souls, that he's opened our blind eyes, that he's given us hearts to receive the Lord Jesus. We thank you, God, for your grace towards us. Father, we do pray that you would send out your Holy Spirit upon our hearts, our neighbors that we care about, and loved ones for whom our hearts ache, and a world that is entrenched in rebellion, but you are greater, far greater, to save those who are religious but who are not regenerate, to save those who are irreligious, irreverent. You are mighty to save all those you please. Help us as your church to be faithful, to rely upon Christ and his spirit, not to lose heart, but to believe that Our weapons are greater than anything of the flesh. To your church, you give your spirit. Make us then humble. 
Help us not to think we can control God the Spirit. Help us to worship the Holy Spirit and all of his sovereign might. God, we thank you. This is your world. This is your earth. We pray your Spirit would move mightily. And may he move even today in all the words that have been preached across the globe. Send out your witnesses then, your people upon the earth, O God. Let them bear glad testimony. And bless that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.